Blog Talk Radio. Driving all night, my hands wet on the wheel. It's talking in circles. There's a voice in my head that drives my heel. With your hosts, Clayton Caldwell. My baby calling till I need you here. And John Harlow. And it's a half past four and I'm shifting gear. Hello everyone, welcome to Talking in Circles. I am Clayton Caldwell, SneedyMedia.com's John Harlow. As we bring another great episode here tonight. We talk about Talladega. Ricky Stenhouse Jr. won his first year in NASCAR Cup Series race. Then we discuss the Fanatics tent. Is it gone? Is that good for NASCAR? Will it help bring the fans back? We'll talk about that. Also, Indianapolis looks like they might want to move their date and maybe even go to a road course. Plus, we'll take your phone calls, 917-889-8280. Here on Talking Circles tonight. But first, John, let's get to it. They got Co. 500 from the Talladega Super Speedway. In Talladega, Alabama, Ricky Stenhouse Jr. gave Roush Fennel Racing their first win since June 22nd of 2014. A stellar run by Stenhouse. Sat on the pole. We've seen this Roush Fenway team, and this 17 team in particular, the last three, four, five, six weeks, really turned around. A year ago, they weren't very good. For the last three years, they haven't been very good. But now it seems like this team has sort of turned it around and Stenhouse goes to victory lane at Talladega Super Speedway. What were your thoughts after they beat out Kyle Busch, John, on Sunday? I thought the last two laps were probably the best two laps Ricky Stenhouse Jr. has probably ever driven in his life. Um, He joked sort of before the race and early in he didn't know what to do because he never started from the pole and especially starting at the pole in a restrictor plate track got to make sure you do everything you can not to be caught in the middle and sent to the back real quick. So he kind of took a cue from Brad Keselowski, had him on his tail and did well at the beginning. Um, Interesting strategies at the end of each stage, but those last two laps, Ricky Stenhouse Jr. did everything right. He got the right push. He had the right lane. He got the right momentum to get by Kyle Busch and held on for his first career victory, which there are three really good things behind it in my mind is I love the tribute to Brian Clawson when he hit victory lane because he parked it. It was great to see Jack Roush finally back in victory lane after what Greg Biffle basically said on NBC sports.com tonight that basically Roush Fenway racing was holding on the last three, four years. They weren't really competitive. They were just holding on to stay in the sport. And the other one, it was great to see a first-time winner. It was great to see somebody who has fought and kicked and struggled so hard in this series after having two Xfinity championships be able to find himself in victory lane and show that Ricky Stenhouse is a real solid driver. The equipment hasn't been there for him, but he's a good driver. Well, yes, I agree. I think um, this is the best we've seen in Now, obviously, let's not go crazy. It is a super speedway event. It is a restricted plate race. It, it kind of evens the playing field a little bit. I'm not sure in a mile and a half or the short tracks, Rash Fender Racing is ready to compete for wins. But now they have time, John, to get them for the chase because they're going to be in it, at least a 17 car. And last year with three teams, they didn't make the chase at all. The year before, Biffle got bounced early. Um, it, it's been a tough go of it. But now it seems like Roush is is – Riding the ship a little bit. They're not all the way back to where we've seen a, a dominant Ford team, but they've had a lot of internal changes there. Um, and a nice win for Brian Patty, too. A lot of people forget he's a crew chief for Ricky Stenhouse Jr. Um, 
Patty was part of the whole Stingate deal with Michael Waltrip Racing and Clint Boyer. Um, and that team fell by the wayside Michael Waltrip Racing because of something Brian Patty had really didn't have much say in. Uh, so he had to sort of rebound his way back. Um, spent last year with Greg Biffle. Spent this year with Ricky Stenhouse Jr. and got back to Victory Lane. This is a guy who went to Victory Lane with Juan Pablo Montoya a couple of times. Um, and Clint Boyer three times there, like I said, at Michael Walter Bracing. So this guy is a winner, and he, and he can win. And it's got to feel good for Brian Patty as well um, to get to Victory Lane. But as far as Stenhouse goes, absolutely. This is the guy who I think we've all been kind of waiting for him to blossom. Uh, one, you know, if you remember when he first got started in the Xfinity Series, it was, he had a tough go of it. Uh, there was a lot of people who were kind of sitting there scratching their heads going, man, I don't know if this kid's going to make it. Him and Colin Brown were wrecking each other. It was a tough deal, but he turned a corner. Then he won two Xfinity Series championships, and he really did well. Rash brought him up into a time where the team really needed somebody from Matt Kenseth to replace him. Stenhouse has stepped in and, and done as best as he could, but the equipment wasn't there, as you stated earlier. But now it seems that the equipment is there. Good for Stenhouse to go out and get the victory and get Roush's first win. Um, really, what else can you say? I mean, it's got to feel good for Jack Roush, too, John, because this is a guy who's used to winning, used to being up front, and he hadn't been in victory lane in a long, long time, so it had to feel pretty good for him as well to get to victory lane. Well, when you brought up Brian Patty, if you think about it, when Kyle Busch first came to the Xfinity Series, he was driving for Joe Nemechek, and Brian Patty was his crew chief. So Brian Patty has come up through the ranks. He's won with Kyle Busch in the Xfinity Series when Kyle Busch was 18-year-old Kyle Busch, not the Kyle Busch we know today. Um, he won with Montoya. He won with Clint Boyer. He's a solid crew chief. He gets things done. He builds good cars. And now that Roush Fenway seems to be of turning the corner, Ford's putting a lot of money into him. I mean, they said one of the things whenever they wanted – when they got Stuart Haas in, it wasn't that they were forgetting Roush Fenway. They wanted to help them get back to where they were. And it seems like they're starting to. And you talked, you heard Stenhouse before going to Talladega. He said the difference between last year and this year, last year, they didn't know what they were rolling off the truck with. And this year they're rolling off the truck fast. And Stenhouse has kind of put them in a box a few times because I think he's gone three or four backup cars already this year. So they finally put a great weekend together. Those last two laps at Stenhouse drove were absolutely perfect. And it was a solid win for Ricky Stenhouse Jr. It was a great win for Roush Fenway Racing. Kansas is starting to get worn out a little bit. So it should be a chance to see how Roush Fenway Racing does on a mile and a half with confidence. It really does. It really should. But I'll tell you another guy who I thought ran a great race those last two laps was James McMurray. McMurray stayed up front all race long. But when push came to shove, he did a great job, John, at the end of that race. I mean, this is a guy who's won play races before. He's won a Daytona 500. He's done a lot of good things in, in a cup car. Um, and when it comes to play tracks, I think McMurray performs well or above a lot of other people. So for him to go out there and um, make a move the way he did as well, that McDonald's Chevrolet, I thought was a great run for him as well. Um, so, you know, McMurray's a guy who – I think benefited as well from just being smart those last two laps. I mean, Kyle Busch finished third. He was a little annoyed at the end of that race. Said, let's go to a real racetrack in Kansas. I'm sure you echo those theories, John, but uh, what are your thoughts on second and third there with Murray and Busch uh, at the end of that race on Sunday? 
I think McMurray, he made a move on those last two laps that I thought was going to pile up the whole field. Whenever he cut between Kyle Busch, he made that hole in the middle of it, and it stuck, and he got in there and got past Bush and got to second place. It was a ballsy move on McMurray's part. I mean, he also probably figured, hey, I'm this close to the end. I can see second place. And where he's standing in the points, he wants to make sure he gets as high up as he can because as many winners as there are right now, there's it's looking like and as many great cars have not hit victory lane. Who knows? This could be the year we have 16 winners going into the playoffs. So it's a great move on his part. Kyle Busch, I mean, it was said earlier in the week on um, one of the shows on Sirius XM that Kyle Busch um, is more upset when he loses than happy when he wins. And, I mean, I'm still a firm believer that I hate restricted plate racing. I think it doesn't really put the driver into effect because you got to hope which line gets going and who pushes you and all that good stuff. And Kyle Busch is great on the mile and a half. So I can understand why he said, I want to go back to a real racetrack and get into a real race because restrictor plate racing isn't what racing is supposed to be. I think a lot of people echo your uh, thoughts on that. And, and, Especially a lot of old school fans who grew up with restricted or not restricted plate racing, but super speedway racing without restricted plates. I mean, I grew up in the '90s. I mean, I was born in '89, and they've had restricted plates my entire life. So that's the only thing I know is restricted plate racing on the super speedway tracks. You obviously were around back in the '80s and '70s when they didn't have restricted plates. So I'm sure it was a lot better then. It was. I'm sure it was a lot different. But it gives sort of even the playing field, and, it, and I think that what is what makes it interesting that the fact that anybody legit win. Um, and another good one, John, was Eric Amarola in fourth. They ran really, really good, but then they got banged for a penalty at the end of the race. Uh, the 43 car failed laser inspection. They got docked 35 points. Uh, Drew Blickensdorfer got fined, and he got suspended for three races. Race engineer Scott McDougal will take over for the Kansas, Charlotte, and Dover. They will not appeal. Uh, at least yet they haven't announced they're going to appeal. Um, it had to do with rear skew. Um, is that too many points, John, you think, uh, for Amarola finishing the fourth spot? He ran Sunday, ran all day Sunday, and lost two points. Um, a big penalty for that 43 car. I have uh, no problem with the big penalty. I think if you fail inspection, you fail inspection. Uh, the same way with um, Joey Logano failing at Richmond, having the encumbered win. I think if you fail, you fail. I mean, you want everybody to be able to have an even playing field. There, the rule, the rule book is the rule book. I know there's the gray area, and you can play in the gray area. But if you cross the black and white, guess what? It's a foul. You're out. I mean, same thing. Strike three isn't an option in baseball. If you three strikes, you're out. Fail the inspection, you're you pay the big price. And I think NASCAR is starting to get there. I think uh, if you really look at how Penske did it, they really played the rules to their benefit when they they appealed to everything. They knew they weren't going to win, but they picked and choose when they sat out Paul Wolf, and he'll mm-hmm. be able. He ran a lot of the chase tracks while he was on appeal, and then it's like, okay, we're in a non-chase track. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna sit Paul Wolf this week. So whenever it came time for it, Paul Wolf has one race to sit. Yeah, it, you're right, and that's what makes it so crazy to me is the fact that they could play with the system the way they did. The 43 car hasn't announced an appeal yet. Kansas is a chase race. 
Um, I just think they're trying to get back into the group because they're not in the chase. I think uh, this drops on a roll of the 22nd points right now um, after a 35-point penalty where it looked like the 43 car was in the same boat as well where uh, they were starting to figure it out a little bit where they were running a little bit better. You know, last year they were a backmarker team, 25th to 20th to 30th on back. They've got a bunch of top 20s this year. A ninth place run at Richmond was very good. And a fourth place run at Talladega figured, made them figure it out a little bit. So, um, you know, they dropped some positions and points. I still think Amarillo can make the chase on his points, but it's going to be tight. A lot of guys back there, um, including, you know, a lot of guys back there. And, and, you know, we talk about Talladega. It's a race where a lot of the young dudes in the draft can go out there and run very good. Um one of those guys, John, was David Reagan. David Reagan went out, finished in the tenth spot. He moved from thirty third to twenty eighth in the points. It's a lot of positions uh in one race and, and it just shows you how tight they run back there. So Reagan and Tenth, he did a good job. Uh Paul Menard, who hasn't had a good year all year long, uh he finished in the ninth spot. Um you had Cole Witt, who ran good all day long, he was sixteenth. Matt D. Benedetto, eighteenth, and Greg Golding twentieth. All those guys, I think, had best finishes of the year, including Reagan, Witt. Uh, Sadler was 17th as well in Tommy Baldwin's car. What are your thoughts on those uh, smaller teams there running pretty good here at Talladega? Uh, the one thing is I wonder how many of them would have been in the position they had without that 16-car pileup. Um, because if you think about it, whenever Blaney and uh, I mean, when Chase Elliott and A.J. Allmendinger and those guys created that pileup, most of those guys were in front of – the Paul Menards, the Greg Galdings, which, I mean, it's a great finish for him, and that's great. I think David Reagan, he's great at running restrictor plate races, which he showed with his uh, Cup Series victory for Furniture Row. But, I mean, I'm yeah, for Furniture Row. I mean, I'm sorry, sure. Front Row Motorsports. He won for Front Row, not Furniture Row. But, I mean, Reagan's a really good restrictor plate racer, so 10th place isn't a surprise for him. I mean, if you remember, Tony Stewart used to find him the – uh, draft with him and Gilliland and when Reagan first came up Stewart called him a dart without feathers so it shows how good they turned into restrictor plate racers Paul Menard he just struggles all year he does well in the restrictor plate races but put him on a real put him on a real track in a real race as Kyle Busch would say and Paul Menard's gonna be in the 20th 25th spot and Greg Galding it was a uh, growth moment for him I mean it's a top 20 finish considering he's a rookie and how young he is and the equipment that he's running in, but it'll be something to learn from. Heck yeah. I mean, no doubt about it. I think just for those guys, to get a little bit of confidence going to Kansas is huge. You know, we talked about the teams that ran pretty good and had a confidence boost. How about Dale Earnhardt Jr., John, who struggled? Um, it looked like the right, you know, they didn't have the left rear tire. It sounded like he only had one lug nut on. I don't know if the wheel was loose or some kind of mechanical uh, problem on the back end of that car, but this has been Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s year so far, it seems like. You know, he's in his final year. He announced that, obviously, that he's, this is going to be the final year of his cup career. He goes out, you know, and he has four finishes this year, four top 20 finishes this year, and six finishes outside the top 20, which isn't good uh, in 10 races. You know, his best finish was Texas. He's got one top 10 this year. Um, right now they sit a disappointing 25th in points, 67 points out of the chase right now, and they have not picked up stage points. You know, Talladega was a race that Dale Jr. was supposed to come in and dominate and run, you know, run very good. They didn't even pick up stage points at Talladega. 
Um, I'm concerned about this 88 car because this is a guy who I think a lot of people want to see make the chase. And right now, John, he's not going to make the chase. Yeah, you know, unless he, he picks it up drastically in the championship, com, com, considering that the top 10 in points in regular season points get playoff points, um, he's going to have a hard time winning the championship. So that 88 team really needs to pick it up. They need to pick it up fast if they want to right this ship here and keep their head above water as far as the championship is concerned. Because we're starting to get late in the year, and being 25th in the points, you're starting to dig yourself a pretty big hole here, John. I think the hole's pretty well dug. I think Junior's getting to the point where, if you remember last year, looking how Stewart went, he had the win at uh, Sonoma, but he realized he wasn't going to go anywhere in the chase, so he pretty much mailed it in at the end of the year and just enjoyed being at the track. I think Junior's getting to that point. Uh, I think he's starting to enjoy being at the track. Him and Amy are going to do a home improvement show. That's coming out. They've already made the announcement on that. So, I mean, He's looking at his next career already. He's looking at what's going to happen next. Um, he had a couple moments where he got in the top five. Didn't seem like they had speed. Um, he couldn't get past anybody. He, If he had a good push, he was okay. He was a pretty good pusher, but he couldn't get out there by himself and do anything. And, you know, Junior, you've seen him before, where if he's got a decent enough car, he can pick off a couple, couple cars on his own without any help. He didn't have that on Sunday. No, I agree. And, uh, you know, I, I am friendly with a person who listens to his radio every day. I'll just say that. Um, listens to his radio every race. And they basically came out and said, listen, it was not good. He was not happy with the car all race long. He hasn't been happy all year long, it seems like, with these race cars. They need to figure it out. Kansas is a track that's a mile and a half. And the last mile and a half track we ran to, Dale Jr. ran pretty good. But it's got to start this weekend. And I don't know how many – more mulligans he has where he can finish outside of top 20 and say, yeah, we're going to make this chase. We're going to make this the playoffs. Um, he's getting to a very, very concerning point. I mean, uh, now especially because he's with, he's with a team that last year, if he had these accidents he's, he's got, in, got into for a couple of races, he could have fixed it and gotten out and gotten points because he was at Hendrick Motorsports and a big team that brought, you know, uh, noses and everything possible to fix the race cars. Now he can't do that. Acts that he's gotten in have hurt him badly. I mean, I guess it evens out compared to the rest of the field, but, man, he really needs to pick it up, John. Another team I was interested in, John, was Joe Gibbs Racing. I mean, here's a team that Denny Hamill had 43 laps. Uh, Kyle Busch led 48 laps. Matt Kenseth led four laps, and he got sorted to the rear because of a, of a penalty. Um, you know, and Suarez has been kind of out to lunch all year long. When will we see this team win their first race? I mean, I think a lot of people have been kind of waiting while we went to Bristol, Richmond. Those are that's Denny Hamlin's track, Richmond. Bristol, Kyle Busch runs really good there. Talladega is a crapshoot, but we can see Toyota win. Joker's Racing has not won yet this year. Uh, we're going to a mile and a half where they seem to be a little bit behind the competition on the mile and a half. Kansas and Charlotte. Uh, what's going on with Joker's Racing? When do you think they're going to get their first win, John? I'm not sure when they're going to get their first win. It'll come. I can promise you that. But one of the things, if you notice, half the races this year have been won by Fords. Ford uh, performance has put so much money in the Cup Series this year, not just with adding the four teams from Stuart Haas Racing, but they've added more engineering support at Roush Fenway. And Roush Fenway having more engineering support helps Petty, or Petty Richard Petty Motorsports, which also helps 
uh, front row, which also <clears throat> bleeds through to the smaller Ford teams. And Penske's been solid all year. And Stuart Haas Racing has been good. They're still getting their foundation underneath them. I mean, you think about some of the teams. I mean, none of the Gibbs cars have won yet. But then again, neither is Kevin Harvick. Neither has Kyle, I mean, um, Clint Boyer, who's run really well in a Stuart Haas Ford. Um, Casey Kane hasn't won yet. He's been respectable at times, but he struggled. Chase Elliott's been up there. He hasn't won yet. Ryan Blaney's been fast all year, always had bad luck happen to him, but he could win. Uh, you've got the four Gibbs cars who could win at some point. They're all three of them are bound to win. I can promise you that Hamlin, uh, Kenseth, and Bush will win at some point this year. It's just a matter of whether they win before the chase or not. So, I mean, we could have 16 winners this year. And there's still the outliers. You never know. Austin Dillon may pull one off because Slugger Labby is a heck of a crew chief who, who might out strategize somebody to get one the same way that Newman did at Phoenix. At Phoenix. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's chances for 16 different winners, if not more, the way they're running this year. You're right, John. And that's what makes this season so interesting to me is the fact that we have this where these guys you look at and you say, uh, Joe Gibbs Racing, they could definitely win, but um, they haven't yet. So, yeah, I, I think there's a potential for a lot of teams that haven't won yet to win, like you mentioned. Nine one seven eight eight nine eight two eight zero here to join a conversation on Talking Circles. Uh, your final thoughts from Talladega, John? You know, I know you don't like play racing, but there's a lot of battles up front. Um, it seems like, uh, you know, it was a pretty en- interesting race strategy kind of went into there. There was some racing there. Uh, you had the big wreck. If you're in the big wrecks, what are your final thoughts on Talladega before we move on? It was great to see Danica Patrick finally make it to victory lane as the girlfriend of Ricky Stenhouse Jr. Uh, she looked really good holding standing beside the trophy as Ricky Stenhouse Jr.'s girlfriend. Um, but I really loved the fact the way Ricky paid tribute to his great friend Brian Clawson by saying he parked it and he said he felt Brian riding with him those last two laps. Um, a fitting tribute to a fantastic racer who lost his life in a midget accident last year. And to show you how committed Ricky is to uh, Brian Clawson, he partnered with his old Ryan Clawson's parents and his old sponsor. And that's who's running the world of outlaw car. It's a Stenhouse owned with partnership with Clawson's families for the world of outlaws car that Joey Saldana is running. So, I mean, it was a personal fitting heartfelt tribute, not one of those, Hey, he ran, he died. I knew him once, but uh, we're going to dedicate it to him. No, Ricky Stenhouse jr. Was a great friend of Brian Clawson. They came up through the midget ranks together and it was great to see that tribute. Yeah, it really was, and uh, touching, no doubt about it. Also, I think it was very impressive, the crowd at Talladega. Considering Richmond the week before, we uh, the conversation was how weak the crowd was. It looked pretty close to full. I don't think it was a sellout crowd at Talladega Super Speedway, but it was the closest we've been getting in a long time. Maybe Dale Earnhardt Jr., you're in Earnhardt country there, his final two races at Talladega. Uh, maybe that had a lot to do with the sales, but... Um, you know, the crowd was very good at Talladega Super Speedway this weekend, so that was refreshing to see. Which sort of brings you to, the next, to my next point here, um, the Fanatics 10. If you haven't heard, Dylan Hart Jr. actually, I think, broke the news sort of on his Periscope or Facebook Live, whatever you want to call it, at the end of the race going home from Talladega Super Speedway, where 
It sounds like they're going to add new, more haulers, which is what we used to have, John, for merchandise to the track. Now we currently have a Fanatics tent where it's a big tent, which I like better, John. I like the tent. You didn't have to walk around going crazy searching for your driver's um, merchandise hauler. Uh, you could There was no lines. You could uh, take stuff off the rack and look at it, try it on if you had to. Um, to me, it was great. I loved the tent. Um, but I think this is a, a overwhelming thing where NASCAR is trying to sort of get fan experience back at these racetracks. SMI last week announced that they're going to do sort of a track side show, like a show what we used to see at Trackside on Speed, um, where where fans are outside and and you know asking questions and stuff like that and engaging if they have if they can um, into the show. SMI announced that like they get all racetracks, so that's a step another step in the right direction. I think we that I I like Trackside better, John, than I do the merchandise thing. I don't think this merchandise thing means a whole lot. I know there's a lot of people going crazy about it because they're excited because the trailers will be back. But to me, it's a very small change. Um, but what were your thoughts when you heard that over the weekend? I think the uh, trailers actually only benefit the drivers who are popular. The one thing about the uh, tents that Fanatics have put up, you're a David Reagan fan. How many trucks do you have to search for to find a David Reagan T-shirt when they had the haulers outside? of Pocono or Dover or any of the tracks you would ever go to. You have to search because David Reagan Mm -hmm. isn't a popular driver. So he doesn't have his own hauler. He's got to blend in with four or five others at Ford performance or something. He has his own rack over at the fanatics tent. I've been to both. I've seen the fanatics tent in Richmond. I mean, at uh, New Hampshire last year, it's nice that it's air conditioned or it's warm whenever you have everything going. I mean, it's, you have a little heat in there whenever it's good. Um, it's, I mean, if we're worried about a fanatics tent, bringing fans back to the track, NASCAR's more, got more problems than we thought they had, but I mean, I agree it, with that. it's up to the personal shopper. I mean, some people like the fact that they can go and see everything and try it on and all that stuff. And some people like the fact that they get to go up to somebody's hauler and it feels like they're going there. And every now and then in the hauler, you get one of the drivers out there signing autographs. That's the one thing that may bring it back to it because it brings a personal touch to it. It's, I mean, it doesn't make a big deal to me. Yeah. Yeah. I can understand the, the autograph session. No doubt about it, but you know, I'll give you another example here. Uh, while we're on it, you said I'm a Reagan fan. You're right. My fiance is a Dale Jr. fan and he's got so much merchandise. They used to have to put some, there was some merchandise in one trailer that was different than the other. And so to find different things, I had to wait in line, look and see what everything had. To me, it was crazy where I could just go to Fanatic tent, walk around, take pictures, and say, do you like this? Yeah, okay, let's get it. And it was quick, boom, bang, boom, I was out. Um, so that's to me, is where, what I really, really enjoyed about that. But, you know, I do think this is a fact where Na- I think everybody's sort of in NASCAR, maybe even before Richmond, but I think Richmond really concerned people with how little people were at that race. Um, and I think it's sort of kicked some things in gear here where they want to bring the fan experience back. Lee Spencer just wrote an article, John, about these veteran drivers and where they need to do a better job sort of, you know, basically saying the younger guys do a better job engaging in fans, and that that could help bring keep the next generation back. Um, you know, and I'll say this, and, and this is my personal opinion. You know, when I was a kid and I used to go, I could get Dale Earnhardt's autograph. I could get a lot of different people's autographs if I wanted to, Bill Elliott, because they would sign at the racetrack. 
these, you know, big name drivers don't do that anymore. Um, and they make more money than they ever have, you know, now. And Lee Spencer put this in his, in her, in her article, and I gave her credit because it's absolutely true, where she says, you know, now you, you, you see a, uh, golf cart parked next to the appearance. They hop onto a golf cart and go right to their motor coach. And that's truth, um, with a lot of these guys. You know, they don't walk out and engage with fans. Uh, I think PRs, people have a lot to do with that one. PRs, now that the PR, uh, Public relations people work for the race team instead of for the sponsors. I think they have a lot to do with that. You know, it's more of, well, we don't want the driver out there and, and to say something stupid um, where, you know, it used to be where you could get really close to these guys. And that was something I know when when I would talk to the newer fans coming into the sport around 2005, 2006, they'd say, man, we love the access we have. We love how close we can get to these guys. We love that they sign all the time. It seems like that's, they've sort of gotten away with that in the last 10 years, John. So that's something I would definitely like to see. I think one of the uh, <clears throat> cool things that I used to enjoy whenever I would go to Pocono and everything, because I was one of them ones I was lucky to have a media pass and I would go there. But I didn't act like I was a media person. I didn't hang out in the media center or anything. I walked up and down Pitt Road. And when you're there for uh, pre-race and all that stuff, the one thing that's different, from back when in the day when Earnhardt would sign stuff and everybody else would be in there pre-race in the garage is a zoo because every sponsor is bringing 20, 30 people in there. The guys are in there trying to get their car ready for the race. The drivers are trying to put their driving face on. Now you could, the best times to catch anybody to get an autograph is when they're walking into the driver's meeting or walking out of the driver's meeting. Those are the best times because everything else, they're either working on a hospitality, going to an appearance, or going to the driver's meeting. That's their morning. And the schedules are just so crazy on drivers' demands before the race that they don't have the time to walk outside and hang out and talk to somebody. I mean, I've been to the track where – Dale, I mean, I was sitting there talking to Buddy Baker before a race one time, and he was still in the media and stuff. I'm sitting there talking to Buddy before he went up to do the, to broadcast the race. Next thing I know, here's Newman. Here comes Earnhardt. And it's like, holy cow, I've got all these top-rung drivers just sitting there bullshitting around me, and I'm just standing there hanging out with Buddy Baker. I mean, it was a great thing. Now Absolutely. there's just no way to do it. And that's what's interesting to me. And you brought up a uh, the the um, drivers meeting, where that's pretty much where the most a- you can get the most access. I heard this week on Talladega they had sort of like a autograph section where drivers could go. You know, if they wanted to go ten fifteen minutes, they, you know, fans would line up in an autograph ses- section and get their autographs, and they would sign. Uh, I think that's great. Um, you know, I know Pocono this year, or two years ago, I went and we could get autographs, but it was as they were walking to the driver's meeting. Um, I'm not talking about so much race day, maybe the Saturday after, during the race. You know, that would help people get down there if you say, hey, we're going to have a, you know, where they, the, the big guy sit at the table and do an autograph session for an hour, two hours, for an hour, just sit on the table Saturday after practice and get, and these fans, come and they sign one item and you say, you know what, make it quick, get it done, boom, bang, boom, you're done. I think that would be cool, you know, like they do with the local short tracks every every now and then. So, um, you know, and I think that would help bring the fans back. Um, 
you know, but there's so much to talk about, John, as far as why the fans aren't coming to the racetrack. I think Hamlin's story last couple of, uh, two weeks ago, I think we touched on it. I think that had some merit, no doubt about it. I think the fact that, you know, you got technology, people are, are watching it on the app. Yeah, that's probably true. Um, it's hot. You know, you can sit in the comfortness of your home. Hotel prices are outrageous. Uh, ticket prices, I think, are, are for most tracks, aren't very good. So I think it's got all tied into one where little bit by little bit, um, you know, I think that's affected the fans there, no doubt about it. Um, well, the one thing, Clayton, Clayton, as you're talking, one of the things you're talking about when it comes to that, if you remember back in the day, they used to have happy hour after the Xfinity race. And part of the reason they don't do that anymore is because Rusty Wallace griped and complained to Bill France Jr. saying he didn't want to waste his whole Saturday. So now they have happy hour and all the practice Saturday before the Xfinity race. And as soon as the Xfinity race starts, you can't find a cup driver to be anywhere because they're in town doing whatever, golfing, having a good time, doing their thing. But it used to be they practice in the morning. The Xfinity race would take place. Then they'd have happy hour afterwards. So when the Xfinity race was going on, you could catch the drivers and get them to sign autographs and different things like that. They were at the track longer, more often, and more accessible. Now they're out of there by noon on Saturday morning, and you don't see them again until 10 o'clock Sunday morning. Yeah, that's the truth. And it's just, you know, it's just different. No doubt about it. I think it's changed a lot, and I don't know if it was intentional. I don't know if it's intentional as far as the driver saying we just don't like the fans or they just don't want to be bothered, but um, we definitely need to see a, I think, a little bit more emphasis put on uh, pleasing the fan at the racetrack. Uh, what's kind of leads to the next point, John, here, um, is Indianapolis. And, and this was something I found interesting. I think it was Adam Stern first broke it about Indianapolis. You know, last year, I believe it was yesterday, a year ago, that the 2017 schedule was announced, um, and we knew what races were where. Well, that's kind of been delayed, and the reason for the delay is that Indianapolis is asking for a change of date, and then there's talk they might go to a road course. Uh, you know, they do they do run a road course at Indianapolis. The Indy cars do prior to the Indianapolis 500. I think they're running it this week, if I, if I got it correct. Yeah, they're running the road course. Um, so it is a track that's actually used which I think is a little bit better of an option than what we were going to see at Charlotte Motor Speedway. I know there's a lot of fans discussing the possibility adding another road course. Um, I personally would like to see them go to an actual road course event. I don't think it's going to happen, though, because then you'd have to give up a date from somewhere, and where are you going to get that date from? I don't think these multimillion-dollar companies are going to say, yeah, we'll take you know, $10 million and give it to a standalone racetrack. Sure. Um so maybe Indianapolis is the best option for that. Uh, but what are your thoughts on this whole Indianapolis deal, John, with pushing the date back and possibly going to a road course? I'd have to see the road course in action first before I even think one way or the other on it. And if you remember before the cup teams ran at Indy and next year is the 25th anniversary of the Brickyard 400. So I'm thinking if they're going to run the road course, it probably wouldn't be until 2019. I think Indy's trying to find the best possible date to make 
the 25th anniversary of the Brickyard 400, something really special. Um, but if you remember a few years, a couple years before they ran at Indy, they ran what was called a tire test. And every team was there. And in reality, what they did was basically run a 250-mile race just to see how the racing would be before they went there. I think they'd have to do an open test to see how the road course would go. I don't know if it's wide enough for the cup series because a lot of, I mean, you got to be able to go too wide to pass. You can't have a one and a half lane track. The Indy cars are not as wide as the cup cars. So they can go too wide on smaller, smaller surfaces and they have the push to pass to get by everybody faster. But I don't know if it'll work. Um, I'd love to see somehow, some way, they find a way to make Indy work. Um, with the track being as flat as it is, it's tougher than hell. Maybe they want to put the sticky stuff that they put down at Bristol in an upper groove at Indy and try to get an upper groove to work so they can pass there instead of everybody following the leader down front. I mean, you could pass on the front stretch and the short shoots, but you got to be single file going into the turns. You're going into the wall. So if they can find a way yeah. to get a second groove to stick in the upper lane, I think it would turn Indy into a better track. I think it's a, I mean, it's a, it's, it's history. Indy is racing, but until NASCAR can find a way to make 3,400 pound cars go too wide in the turn, it's going to be the same boring Indy it's been since the tire debacle. Well, and here's the thing. If they go to road courses, that take the aura away from Indianapolis, you know, to me, it kind of does. Uh, I think when you look at the Brickyard 400 and you think about the actual racetrack itself, you go, man, that racetrack's been there forever. If you run the road course, you kind of go, well, it's not really Indianapolis. You know, and I have a, a friend of mine who was saying, hey, why don't we just go to IRP? Listen, I would love. That ship sailed. <laughs> I, love, I, would put, I would put love in bold underline italic, whatever you want to put it in, love to go to IRP. But it's not going to happen, um, especially the Cup Series. So, you know, they're going to try to make this work. It just makes me wonder, John, you know, they're going to a restricted play for the Xfinity Series this year at, that, at Indianapolis. It makes you wonder what kind of confidence they have in the restricted play at Indianapolis and if that's going to work, if they're mulling a decision to go to a road course, you know, I don't know, to me, and I, listen, I understand that people want a third road course race. And maybe they think, well, we're going to chase state if we move a road course race to the chase. That could very possibly be. But, you know, it's just funny. It's just, there's a couple of things. One is, I think it's going to run the era, aura, I should say, at Indianapolis. And I also think it's funny how these racetracks are now coming out and saying, listen, we know we need another road course. <laughs> We'll build one inside our racetrack rather than go to Road America, rather than go to the road course up in Canada, rather than go to Road Atlanta, rather than go to Mid-Ohio. They'd rather build a road course inside their racetrack so they can keep that date. That, to me, just shows you the kind of business and the kind of game that goes – the gamesmanship that goes on here, John. I really would like to see the big track work. And that's what I would love to see. Um, I really think um, Indy's a special place. If they go to the road course, it does lose its aura. Um, if you look this month, 
they're running the road course on Sunday, I believe. And they may have 50,000 people for that race, but then they'll have 200,000 people on Sunday for the, or two weeks for the 500. So it's two different worlds. And the way it's been lately, if they can get 50,000 there for NASCAR, hey, that's a win because it's been struggling, struggling, struggling because the racing has been very bad. Um, I just would love to see um, how good it could be and get them to find a way to get that second groove to work so they could run on the big track, run the Brickyard 400 like it was. Because the one thing that scares me about running the restrictor plate on the Xfinity race is – the, the restrictor plate is made to bunch the cars up. So we're going to bunch the cars up and then go three, four wide on the front stretch. That's no problem. But when you got one lane to turn into turn one, how big is that pile up going to be on lap three? It's going to be 27 cars into the wall because it's going to be a mess because they're going to bunch them all up and there's no place for anybody to go and somebody's not going to back out and it's going to become a mess. Oh, I totally agree. I think, um, but they're going to try Indianapolis. No doubt about it. But man, restricted plates. I don't think are going to work. And maybe this is a sign that NASCAR sits there and goes, "Hey, uh, we'll try even something different to keep Indianapolis alive." It's been a the crowd's been, you know, disappointing the last few years there. No doubt about it. Um, you know, you brought up something interesting off air, John, before. How about the temperature in Indianapolis? You say it's, you know, you're right when you say it's really hot there in August. So maybe an October race or even earlier in the year, you know, like a March race or something like that. What are your thoughts on moving the date from Indianapolis? Um, and, you know, obviously we get into the talk of what date would you replace, but we'll talk about that on another day if that comes out to be true. But uh, do you think it would benefit at all if, if you moved it to a little bit of a cooler weather? Uh, Indy can't, Indy couldn't do March because there's still the opportunity for snow. April's wet in Indy. I mean, I went to school in Indy back in the eighties. So May's the earliest and May is tied up with the Indy cars. And then June through August, you might as well just build in a sweatshop because it's almost like St. Louis where it's 90 every day with the humidity at 85%. Um, an October race. Yeah, it's great. But right now the racing sucks in Indy and you don't want to put that in the chase. So, Indy's in a rock and a hard place. Until they can make the racing better, they're going to be stuck with a July or August date, and they're going to struggle to get everybody through, but they got to get that groove to work where there's two, they can go too wide and have passing without the restrictor plate and find a way to make the big track go. Agreed. And um, that's something I think that definitely, definitely needs to be looked at. Um, you know, speaking of Indianapolis, John, we talked about uh, – the Indy 500. It is this week. Or excuse me. The entry list came out this week. They're going to be at Indy this week, running the road course. Then, of course, you got all the qualifying, and then the big race in a couple of weeks in Indianapolis. Uh, the entry list came out this weekend, John, for the Indianapolis 500. Um, 33 cars on the tentative entry list. Was there anybody that you looked at that you're kind of surprised? Um, you know, I, I'm my background's not in any car. I trust you guys more with that, and, and I pay attention come May, uh, and I really don't pay attention after that. But um, Same with most of the country. This week. Yeah, right. Same with most of the country, exactly. The Grand Prix of Indianapolis is this week, but as far as the Indy 500 goes, were there any surprises you saw on that entry list where you went, wow, I know Buddy Lazier, the veteran's down. I think he does like sort of a start-park deal. 
But what anybody else you saw on that list that kind of surprised you? Uh, I haven't really glanced at the list yet. The one, the big surprise is uh, Alonso coming from F1 to do the 500 and skipping the Grand Prix of Monaco to do that. Uh, that McLaren has come back on. Johnny Rutherford's going to be an ambassador for McLaren because he actually won the race for them years ago. Uh, when it comes to the Indy 500, you're looking at three teams with a real good chance to win. It's either be Penske, it's going to be Chip Ganassi, or it's going to be Michael Andretti. One of those three. Um, you have a shot with um, um, Tony George's son, uh, brain dead on that. Um, but, I mean, they have a shot. They run really well on ovals. Joseph Newgarden's driving for him this year. Uh, no, Joseph Newgarden's with Penske. It's a um, guy who drove for Panther and wrecked in the National Guard car years ago. Uh, J.R. Hildebrand's uh, driving hey. the 21 yeah. this year. And um, I think he's – they run good on the ovals, but, I mean, Indy is about engineering. Uh, you look at Penske, he's got his four cars, plus one Pablo driving a fifth car for him. Chip Ganassi's always tough there. I mean, Roger Penske and Chip Ganassi, their world starts and ends at the Indy 500. They can run great the rest of the year and don't really care as long as they got that uh, kiss of the bricks and their name on the Borg Warner Trophy. Yeah, and I'd say it's a, it's a great uh, race. Just back, I would just love to be there and experience the atmosphere when that race kicks the green flag with all those fans staring down at you and the, handing the grandstands. Um, but I was just curious, you know, um, 33 cars, it, it's, it seems like every year it's a push to get 33 cars. I'll tell you, I'm going to miss Clawson this year. That was a guy I used to root for all the time in that race because I always thought he could do pretty well. Um, and it just, you know, you had, I think you had an accident a couple of years ago, ran okay last year before he got, uh, you know, we, we lost him after that. Um, but, yeah, no, the Indy 500 is a great, great weekend. Um, I'm interested to see, uh, you know, Buddy, Buddy was there again. He's down. It, it, well, it sounds like he's down. There should be 33 cars. They're saying he's not officially entered, so that makes um, 33 cars. But, you know, what do you expect to see from Indianapolis this year, John? Do you expect to see, you know, the same racing we've seen where they've kind of been sort of put up in a pack? And do you think the race will lose a little bit luster because there's not a, a NASCAR driver there? Uh, I think it ran really good last year without a NASCAR driver, but that was because it was the 100th anniversary and everybody had to go to it. But, I mean – there's some really quality cars in there. Roger Penske's got five cars. All five of them will have a chance to win. Um, Sam Schmidt's teams with James James Hinchcliffe. James Hinchcliffe's a solid driver driving for Jam, uh, Sam Schmidt. Uh, you got Dixon and Kanon for Chip uh, Ganassi, who are always, uh, always up there ready to go. Graham Rahal's been doing pretty good for uh, Bobby Rahal, David Letterman, and Michael Lanigan. Uh, Ed Carpenter, who I forgot about, him and J.R. Hildebrand are solid on the ovals. Um, Andretti's got five cars. Marco always finds a way to fall apart in it. Um, Ryan Hunter Ray's always competitive. Um, it'll be good to see what they end up doing. Um, Sebastian Bourdais driving for Dale Coyne. He always has a shot to win because he always takes care of his equipment. He's there at the end. And the one who surprised us a couple years ago, and he's driving again for Andretti Autosport along with Brian Herta is Alexander Rossi. And I'm surprised he hasn't tried to go to Formula One yet because he hasn't gotten the solid footing and support from Andretti. But it's just a matter of who has more horsepower this year, the Chevys or the Hondas. Yeah, and that's always it seems like uh, at the big factor always in Indianapolis, this horsepower. But 
we'll keep our eye on that as as the month rolls along. Obviously, when he's hit the May, everybody's you know hits Indian, thinks Indianapolis, so uh, should be a lot of fun. We'll we'll give you the lineup there as well when they, when they qualify in a couple of weeks. But you know, like I said, running the Grand Prix this weekend, 500 in a couple of weeks. Nine one seven eight eight nine eight two eight zero. If you want to join the conversation on talking in circles, um, Kansas this weekend, John, the Go Bowling 400. Kansas Speedway for the NASCAR Cup Series, Monster Energy NASCAR Cup Series, I should say. Um, you know, we've seen Kyle Larson get off to a really good start on the mile halves this year. Uh, it seems like that 42 team is sort of not hit a low, but they haven't been as strong as they were as far as the finishes are concerned. But, you know, we get to two mile-and-a-half tracks, and we go to Dover. Um, you know, and you got the all-star race in between that, which – you know, you can kind of group them all together. So, really, three mile-and-a-half tracks in a row. Uh, as far as that's concerned, who do you expect to be competitive uh, at, at Kansas and then at Charlotte in a couple of weeks? Um, the thing is, Kyle Busch hasn't won, but he's led a heck of a lot of laps. So, I wouldn't count him out on any of these mile-and-a-halves because Kyle Busch finds a way to win. Um, this week, I want to see something special out of Clint Boyer. He's finally in good. He's finally in a good ride. And he's been running well in that 14 car. And he's at home. How cool would it be for you to get back into victory lane at home in Kansas? The other ones who I'd like to I think, I mean, Larson hasn't shown anybody a reason why not to believe in him. Eric Jones has been doing better and better. I still want to see Blaney um, put a full race together. He hasn't really had the chance to do that yet. But I think Blaney, if he puts a full race together, could end up pulling it off. And Chase Elliott, I mean, he's been consistent all year long. He's always up there. You're always hearing Chase in the conversation. And I think Chase could end up winning this race. And, I mean, then you got your old reliables of Kenseth, Harvick, uh, who haven't won yet but could. And Truex has been solid a mile and a half as well. So, I mean, these next three weeks are open game. We go to Dover, you might as well just pencil Jimmy Johnson in as the winner unless something crazy happens. For sure. And I'd say I agree with a lot of the things you said. I think uh, Blaney and, and Elliot, you know, especially Chase, a lot of people have been waiting for him to win. You know, um, he's been so close so many times. He's led a lot of laps. He's in a great team. He's been the, the, the breadwinner, the, the, you know, man who holds the flag there at Hendrick Motorsports uh, and really has done a great job there. And Jimmy's, seen, you know, Jimmy's pulled off a couple of wins here lately. Um, but Chase has been probably the most consistent car there all year, and he just seems to can't, can't get that W. Uh, it would be amazing if he could go out and win because, you know, these young drivers are the next generation. Uh, we're losing – it seems like we're losing these veteran drivers every year now. You know, you lost Tony Stewart. We lost Jeff Gordon. We've lost uh, – and now we're going to lose Dylan Hart Jr. at the end of this year. So these young guys, uh, Chase Elliott, Kyle Larson of the world, which is, are fun to watch. Um, they're fun to watch. So I think definitely something that if they can get a win under their belt would help sell the sport. Um, you know, so when you think about Kansas, John, you know, what else do you think this weekend about, um, you know, who could be fast and who could be strong? Well, the one thing I was looking at this weekend that I'm happy as hell about, it has nothing to do with anybody who's got a chance at winning. Carl Long is in the race. He's in the entry list. He, in 2009, got the largest fine in the history of NASCAR because his engine for the Sprint Showdown was 0.17 cubic inches too big. 
and it was a $200,000 fine. Eight years later, Carl Long has paid off the $200,000 fine and is in, he is eligible to compete at the Cup Series. So Carl Long will be attempting the race at Kansas. And I love the underdog story. What? Driving a, six, driving a 66 this weekend, um, no doubt. You know, goodness, I remember when that happened. That was in the all-star race, the all-Western opener, the sprint showdown, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I thought it was a ridiculous penalty when it when it came out. You know, $200,000 for one-sixteenth of, of an inch when he bought the engine. He didn't even build it uh, after he blew it up. You know, I just thought that was kind of crazy there, John. I think it was. I think it's um, amazing how much determination he's had to come back because a $200,000 fine for somebody who hasn't seen $200,000 in his life is basically the death sentence for the NCAA. But somehow over the past eight years, he struggled, fought, kicked, screamed, probably every time he'd go to the racetrack in the Xfinity series, uh, he'd make a few thousand bucks and put a thousand bucks in NASCAR's coffer, whatever he was doing, spotting or working on somebody else's car. He'd mail a payment in every month or something. It's like he bought a house. I mean, you look at it, that's $200,000 is a house in the town I grew up in. And that's a damn nice house. And he just paid that off in eight years so he could drive again to finish 35th to 40th. But that's how much heart and soul this man has to be in the sport. And that's something to be truly commended. Yeah, and I'll tell you, when that finally came out, what bothered me the most about it was we were a year maybe away, removed from what Michael Waltrip and his team did at Daytona where they put uh, an illegal substance was found in their race car underneath the restrictor plate in the intake manifold. And, yeah, Michael got a hard penalty. He got 100 points taken away from him, which at that point, was obviously a little bit less. It'd be probably equivalent to like, you know, thirty points this week. And he lost. He missed a lot of races that year. But as far as monetary value went, you know, they didn't. They seemed to sort of make a an example out of Carl Long. I felt that, you know, hey, two hundred thousand dollars. This is a guy who, you know, like you said, he. I don't even know if he ran another race a whole year besides the All Star race, trying to make a few dollars. It might be a start and park effort this weekend, you know, with the way the points are ranked now and, and the only points you don't mean that much for these smaller teams and the fact that you have to have a charter to get forward. I, I, I don't know if he's going to run it. I know he bought a couple of chassis, maybe one or two from, I know at least one, obviously, but uh, from H. Scott Motorsports, from Harry Scott, shut down a race team last year with the team that Clint Boyer was with. Um so I don't know how many cars he has. So he, I don't know if he can go out there and run at full speed consistently and take the risk of tearing up a race car and then put himself in a little bit of a financial hole there for a little bit. But he has done a, a good job as far as a business is concerned on the 40 and the 13 cars. Um, they haven't run. They're not nearly as competitive as I think everybody would hope there. But – there's an opportunity to, for money to be made if you're going to start and park the cup because that's such a big loophole because there's really no point in running if you're an open team and you're not going to be competitive. So I, you know, I think from a business standpoint for Carl Long, that you know I hope he runs all the race, but if he doesn't, I understand where he's coming from. No doubt about it. 
like I said, I just am intestinal fortitude, the wanting to be there. And that's something I wish more people understood or the what it took to get there. I mean, there's a lot of drivers who walk in the door and they go to Hendrick Motorsports. I mean, Chase Elliott, I love the kid. He's a great driver, but he's never had to want for anything in his life. That kid's been a Hendrick Motorsports developmental driver since he was 15 years old. So when he was running ARCA and K&N Pro and everything like that, he was in top-notch equipment. Carl Long just doing everything he can to get there. And there are so many guys who would love to be able to get there. The Brandon McReynoldses, the Corey LaJoys, the, the kids who have talent but don't have the wherewithal to make it. And Carl Long has fought, kicked, screamed everything he's done to get where he is. And he's going to be in the race on Saturday night. And I'm just so happy to see it. Yeah, I think what the word you look for is racer, you know. And these older guys who maybe started their cup career later than, than these younger kids, you know, part of the reason that bothers me nowadays is, you know, I remember when I was a kid growing up, there was a lot of guys who, well, he was a three-time track champion at this racetrack. You know, he was a four-time track champion at this racetrack. And you're like, okay, wow, he's really, really had a good career. He's really earned something. You know, now that these kids are 17 years old and they're starting in the truck series, they don't really run at the local short tracks anymore. They jump right into, to, you know, a Cannon East ride. You see Harrison Burton is in a very good Cannon East ride. And it's not anything wrong with that. I'm not trying to blame the kid and saying, well, they're rich kids and stuff like that. It's just a different world um, than what we lived in. So I think these guys, like, who – sort of scraped it together, won a championship. I think we all have respect for those guys because it was very hard for them. And I'm not saying that these kids can't drive that nowadays that, um, you know, have a little bit better off as far as financials go. Um, but at the end of the day, I think you respect it a little bit more where a guy who started from the ground up and made it work into the Cup Series and I would like to see us get back to that, John, where money doesn't mean so much. Uh, what well, are your you thoughts at, on that? Well, you look at Stenhouse, he was talking about in Victory Lane. There were times where his parents, they ate uh, ham sandwiches during the week so they could afford a right rear tire for Ricky's car because they put a lot of their family earnings into giving Ricky a chance at his career before he wound up hooking up with Tony Stewart, uh, driving for Tony Stewart Racing in the dirt and midget cars. And that's when Tony recommended him to go to Jack Roush. I mean, Stenhouse started on his own. Um, you look at Dale Jr. Everybody thinks of Dale Jr. having the silver spoon being an Earnhardt. He built his own cars, drove for somebody else. And him and his sister, Kelly, and his brother, Carrie, had a late model that the three of them split the driving on. And they worked on it themselves. They didn't get the old man's money to put it together. And that's how it was back then with a lot of these guys. I mean, I think, you know, the amount of respect from the fans, that's why we, we bring up the guys like Carl Long. Um, I want to thank John Arlo again. Great job. You know, you can see his stuff on speedwaymedia.com. I also want to thank everybody for listening to Talking Circles tonight. We'll see you next week on Talking Circles. Good night, everybody.